This is Jimmy Scroggins. I'm the lead pastor at Family Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. Are you tired of going to conferences, reading books, and listening to speakers who tell you how to do church when you know that you cannot do what they are recommending? You've come to the right place on our podcast. We're going to give you principles, strategies, and ideas that you can implement right now with the resources you have at your church because this is church for the rest of us. Welcome back to the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Leslie Bennett. And today, we're going to talk to my friend, Dr. Kevin Smith, who currently serves as the Executive Director of the Maryland-Delaware Baptist Convention. Just so our listeners know, we're reminding them that the people we're interviewing are the people who have influenced you the most, Jimmy, and so influence us by association. So tell us how you know Dr. Smith. Well, I got to know Kevin when I was a teaching pastor in Louisville, Kentucky at Highview Baptist Church. And he was the senior pastor at Watson Memorial Baptist Church. And we became friends. We have a lot in common. He's got a ton of kids at his house all the time. I've got a ton of kids at my house all the time. We're both University of Louisville fans. In fact, our families are good friends. He and his family often come to South Florida at Christmas time. Sometimes they come over to our house and we watch the big game between the University of Kentucky and the University of Louisville in basketball. And then later, Kevin uh, served with me at Highview Baptist Church and He was a professor at Southern Seminary, just like I was. So I really value Kevin's friendship and his perspective. I can't wait to meet him, learn more about him. So let's go to our interview with Dr. Kevin Smith. Hey, Kevin, welcome to Church for the Rest of Us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your family, your background in ministry, and what your role is now? I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and my wife, Pat, is from Chattanooga, Tennessee. We have three children, adults, uh, two sons and a daughter. That we just married off last fall, and for about eight years, we've raised two great nephews. And so we have three to five kids. Uh, <laughs> I love that, the range. Plane tickets. <laughs> That's who we are when you say the Smiths. Um, I've been a chaplain. I've been a church planner in Tennessee through the Tennessee Baptist Convention. I've been a pastor in Tennessee and Kentucky. Taught for about 15 years at Southern, uh, the last two and a half years in an adjunct capacity as I've been here in Maryland, Delaware, as the um, executive director. We have about 500 plus churches in Maryland and Delaware, and we are trying to be fruitful in gospel ministry in this area, as you are in South Florida. I was reading your bio, Dr. Smith, and I noticed that we have something in common because I also lived in the D.C. area, and I worked on Capitol Hill from 1986 to 1992, and I believe wow. you worked on Capitol Hill around that yes. same time. Is that right? That is correct. The uh, Tax Policy Committee, Don Nichols of Oklahoma, was sure. the chairman. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, well, you might know my husband then, George Bennett. Oh my goodness. I have to think. Okay. He used to work for the Evans Novak tax report. He did the Evans Novak tax report. So yes. you might be familiar with that. So there you go. There so you go. from the strong memory lane, yeah. small world. And now, Kevin, you know, one of the things you and I are both kind of committed. We are church people, we're preachers, we're family people, but at the same time, we've decided to kind of hitch our wagon to the Southern Baptist Convention. That's our tribe. That's our movement. Why are you personally involved in Southern Baptist life? Uh, Personally, I'm involved in the SBC because of the confessional commitment, the missiological methodology, meaning the way we support 
international, national, and local missions through the Crawford program, and also just the breadth of things that we're able to do. I found that to be tremendously valuable. In the Southern Baptist Convention, it's large enough that you can have uh, your sweet spot and your specialty, but also be a participant in God's kingdom work in a broad and a rich way. I mean, for example, you support all that we all do together as a as Southern Baptist, but you have a particular sweet spot for church revitalization and replanting in South Florida. And so that's why I'm Southern Baptist. Uh, I was ordained in a church that was duly aligned with the National Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist Convention. But through my adult life and church planning and ministry, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention has been a wonderful place to just have breath and impact in ministry. Kevin, I know that in the SBC, we have an interesting mix of people involved. We like to say that we have our brothers and our sisters, and then we have our crazy uncles. But one of of the things that's got to be a challenge for you is SBC is perceived largely as a white denomination. It is perceived um, because of our historical uh, roots, which are are shameful and sinful. And yet here you are as a black guy, an African-American, and you're one of the key leaders in Southern Baptist life. In fact, for our listeners, when uh, Kevin was elected as the executive director of Maryland, Delaware, he is only the second African-American to serve as an executive director of a state convention in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so, uh, Kevin, I'm just curious about, you know, challenges that you face. I mean, is it hard for you to be an African-American leader in the SBC? Some days, some days, <laughs> uh, I think one thing that some of our other brothers and sisters probably don't deal with is uh, being a Southern Baptist uh, who's black, you often have to explain just your very existence to people. You know, I say people, I mean generally people who are more in the um, historic black uh, denominations and curious about why you're Southern Baptist and how that came about and you know, again, a lot of it has to deal with the things we just discussed regarding breadth and missiological methodology, but that can be hard sometimes because sometimes that's a sincere question and sometimes it's kind of not sincere and people are kind of, what we say, uh, try to check your black cards and see if you're black enough. Um, and so that can be a little challenging sometimes, but as far as just us being brothers and sisters, I think we have the same, it's hard because of the New Testament challenges of being obedient to Ephesians 4 and 3. It's hard because of the New Testament challenges of not having divisions along the lines of Galatians 3.28. Those things can make it hard. I think it's hard sometimes because we struggle with the issues of distinguishing unity versus uniformity. Certainly that's not just a black-white thing. That's also generationally, culturally, all those kind of things. But it strikes and it comes across certain ways, being a black brother in the SBC. And I think sometimes in a Romans 12, 15 sense, I think it's just hard sometimes because of our inability or our need to grow and the ability to weep with one another and to rejoice with one another. I'm very fortunate. Many things that have happened in the news in the last several years, whatever, I was teaching pastor at Hobby Baptist Church and which was a mostly white congregation. And I was in a very loving and pastor loving and brother and sister loving type congregation. And so even if people had different views on things or different opinions on things, we had love and concern for one another as brothers and sisters. And so if, if, if everybody wasn't 
trauma, if everybody didn't exactly understand why I was hurt or, or troubled by the events in Ferguson, Missouri, they at least cared that, hey, our pastor's kind of hurt and bothered by these things. Uh, let, let us love him and let us make sure uh, we, we're open to hearing about these things. And we had a wonderful time of discussion. Uh, we had a panel discussion at one of our comp- at one of our campuses and had brothers and sisters just from different backgrounds, black, white, Asian, Hispanic. And so I think one of the hardest things is just trying to uh, do that Christian love of Romans 12 and uh, 15, where we rejoice with one another, we weep with one another, and indifference and insensitivity really harm Christian unity. And certainly, you know, someone being black in a larger white body wouldn't be the only person sensing that kind of thing. I mean, certainly everything we're talking about now with sexual abuse and things, that's been good time of, of sisters feeling insensitivity and indifference towards certain things or children feeling that. So insensitivity and indifference has certainly been a obstacle to deal with being a black person in the Southern Baptist Convention founded in 1845. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kevin, one of the things that I love speaking with you about are just some of the challenges that we face as a denomination when it comes to inclusion and diversity. I wonder if you just speak to some larger challenges that you observe as you look around Southern Baptist life, but then maybe you would also speak to some uh, signs of hope and some progress that you see as well. Well, I certainly think there's been progress made just if you just would read history books and read some of the things that have happened over the last 150 years in Southern Baptist life, certainly in the last 60 years, you would, you know, you would notice tremendous things that are different. I think one of the major challenges is that many of our churches are just not situated in homogeneous neighborhoods anymore. And I find a lot of churches just struggling to deal with the diversity of people that are around their churches as they seek to be gospel-minded and reach the gospel and share the gospel, hopefully, prayerfully with anyone and with everyone. So that's certainly a challenge. Another challenge is just the uh, reality of, hey, sometimes life looks different from different perspectives, whether you have a different ethnic perspective or whether you have a different economic perspective or even whether you have a different geographic perspective, like living in West Palm Beach versus living in downtown New York City or things like that. But I am tremendously encouraged just by the fact that there are constantly brothers and sisters that want to push on towards Ephesians 4.3 unity. They're constantly brothers and sisters that are taking stands for uh, biblical New Testament relationships. And they're constantly, you know, brothers and sisters that are doing courageous things as far as acknowledging history of the past. Uh, uh, My seminary, Southern Seminary, recently did a report on some background issues and historical issues of the seminary. Um, So I'm always encouraged some of the steps and the uh, statements and the actions that people are taking to say, look, if we want to go forward in a godly way, we need to push forward in these ways. Certainly there's been some formal things. Um, There was a resolution in 1995 uh, condemning the convention's involvement in in slavery and its origins. There was the election of Fred Luter as convention president. And I think even now, you know, there's constant discussions about uh, having diversity and leadership positions, our trustee appointments, our committee appointments, 
had the next uh, a few years ago, Bronman Holman published a book that I wrote a chapter in called "Removing the Stain of Racism uh, from the Southern Baptist Convention." And that certainly wouldn't have been published in 1966, <laughs> and it certainly certainly would have been published in 1906. And so I think certainly you can point to encouraging areas where things are changing. You know, if you read the Bible, no spiritual growth generally happens overnight. And so uh, sometimes when people say, why are you Southern Baptist? One of my answers is just because I want to be part of the trajectory that is going in a different place than where it started in 1845. That's really good. I liked what you said about having to reach different neighborhoods. And as you work with churches, especially there in the Maryland, Delaware area, are there some specific ways that you coach pastors to um, look at their neighborhoods and embrace the diversity that's all around them? Well, one thing, sometimes this is just an awkward conversation. I'm trying to encourage pastors to think about the kind of lives that they lead. It's hard to lead your church to reach a lot of different people around us if your life does not interact with different people around you. And certainly our churches that are in the D.C. suburbs, uh, you know, the whole world comes to Washington, D.C. Our churches that are in Baltimore and that line, you know, the whole world comes to those places. And so what kind of lives are you living as a pastor? Hopefully I would desire that many more pastors of established churches would still have the mentality of church planters that they need to get out and meet people. <laughs> you know, Brother Jimmy and I, we both have taught at seminary, and unfortunately, some people leave seminary and they want to, their role models have been their professors rather than practitioners, and so they want to, they want to pastor a church and kind of live like their professor and study and research and write books and all those kind of things and all that, whereas uh, a pastor in a changing neighborhood has to really be a man on the streets, mm. a man who is meeting people and engaging people. One of the things I enjoy about Brother Jimmy is anytime, I, anytime I'm uh, around him or I talk to him, he's always talking about some different person that he's encountered at the church or some different person that has come to the church recently. So the, uh, a pastor has to be out and about meeting people. And if you're doing that, you will engage the diversity that is around your church, around your congregation. And it will be authentic. It will not be anything that's kind of conjured up or manufactured, but it'll be authentic as you meet people and share the gospel with people. I also like what you said about developing some areas where you have those conversations like you've done in the past. So do you? how do you set that up? Like, how does somebody who wanted to have that kind of conversation around per t perhaps an issue of the day, how do you go about approaching that? One of the issues is pastors and Christians in general getting out more in some of these community spaces where people are talking about things. Like for me, example, it's the Harley shop where bikers are talking about things or it's the barber shop where you get your hair cut. When my kids are in the house, it's those seasons of sports where they're playing and you interact with those other parents for 12 and 14 weeks. And so you get to talk about ideas and things that people are talking about as you're out in some of these community spaces mm. and not hiding up or not just not living within your church. You know, I pastored a church. We had a K through 12 school. I mean, I had members, you know, Monday, I, I had members who's who probably 90% of their human action was with church members of us. And in order to engage a community that is changing around you, Christians, particularly pastors as they lead out, must be much more engaged on a street level of meeting and engaging people in conversation. 
You know, Kevin, one of the things that I love that you're saying is that a pastor has to model inclusion and diversity in his own life and relationships and the rhythm of his own interactions if he expects his church to do the same. And I really affirm that. And that, that kind of goes to, to my last question, Kevin. If there is a pastor listening to us in church for the rest of us, and he says, man, I'm hearing what Dr. Smith is saying. I really want to do that. I want to do better in this area of inclusion, of diversity. And let's say he's right now a zero on a scale of one to 10. What would it take for him to move the needle a little bit? How could he go from a zero to a two? What's some initial thoughts or initial practical steps a pastor could take to begin this journey towards what I think is a gospel issue, and that is uh, moving towards Great Commission inclusion? One, just to move the needle, is to get some kind of social engagement in spaces where there are different kinds of people and prayerfully over time have gospel conversations in those areas. There's nothing more where one can easily engage in, I think, conversations that matter than at something having a conversation about the gospel or having a conversation about what someone thinks is the central worldview or organizing principle of their life. Other than evangelistically, I would say, especially for pastors, I just think it's tremendously valuable if you would meet and develop a friendship with a pastor in your city that's not in your denomination. And it's not, we're talking about, for example, black, white, talking about, uh, you know, I would try to meet a pastor, a Bible-believing, faithful pastor that's in one of the historic black denominations, National Baptist Convention, AME, Church of God in Christ, something like that, and develop a friendship. Because how you engage people who are economically or ethnically different than you, all those things spin out of friendships or relationships or the lack of those types of friendships. And so that would be a great way just to move the needle because you really it's really hard to lead your congregation on a mass level to do something that you aren't doing on the micro level of your life. And I think you'd see the kingdom different when you begin to talk to brothers and sisters and other denominations who love Jesus and you find out that, wow, I've been blessed by this encounter and I'm thankful for this friendship. Well, I can tell you right now, Kevin, I'm thankful for my friendship with you over many years at this point. Chris and I both are uh, thankful to God for you and Pat. And you know how much I love you and respect you and how much you've actually helped me on my own journey. And um, I'm in process as well. And so thank you for joining us on Church for the Rest of Us. And just to sum up Dr. Smith's comments, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, make a friend. That's what he's trying to tell you. If you want to move the needle, make a friend, build a relationship. That would probably be prior to you, you know, preaching a sermon series or browbeating yes. people or trying to guilt people. Model something in your own life, experience something, and I think that'll push you down the road pretty good. Hey, I'm really Amen. grateful for men like Kevin to give leadership to our state conventions. I want to thank Tommy Green the executive director of the Florida Baptist Convention and the convention that he serves for their support of this year's Sharper Conference. It was another great success. We could not and would not have done it without the Florida Baptist Convention walking right beside us. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins or Check out FamilyChurchNetwork.com to chime in on our blog. We want your feedback on today's podcast. Plus, we want to know what you are doing because we want to learn from you, too. 
Hey, until next time, this is Jimmy Scroggins, and you've been listening to Church for the Rest of Us.